Amazing All right, you guys. So there is an idea about Christianity that exists today that I think has always existed, actually, which posits Christianity as the solution to all the evils and trials and tribulations that exist in the world. Uh, maybe kind of along those lines, sure. And in one sense, of course, it probably... I mean, it is true that Christianity is the solution for those kinds of things. We have reconciliation with God and with other believers and the assurance of our salvation and and our justification because our Savior is risen and he's living to make intercession for us. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We have true and real promises from God that exist within the covenant that we're in with him that give us a hope and joy, a true and real hope and joy. Yeah. Um, But there is um, this idea that exists, and it seems especially popular today, that says that being a Christian will alleviate one from all of their problems. Uh, Sometimes that goes by like the prosperity gospel. Adam mentioned easy believism. That's certainly part of it. Others um, speak of it as like a name it and claim it type of mentality or name it and claim it churches, which always tend to be charismatic or leaning that way at least. But even in, so, in many so-called evangelical conservative churches, which at the same time actually tend to lean charismatic when that error is present in them, there is this tendency to view Christianity as the key to happiness, which then also means that all trials and tribulations will not be for you. Even if that's not outrightly stated, it seems to be this underlying belief among many professing Christians. And if one was to study church history, you would find that sort of leaning in Christianity, which is nothing other than a failure to understand covenant theology and eschatology and a study of the end times, and at worst, even the gospel as well, that it is always something that the church has had to contend with. This idea of having no trials, no persecution, no suffering. If we think back to the covenant that God made with Abraham, which was continued with Moses and David, those temporal promises that would constitute this idea of peaceful and restful existence with God were all types of what would be true in the new heavens and the new earth. Temporal promises. And then Jesus comes the first time, and people expect him to usher in this new heavens and new earth right when he he first comes, and to bring in that reality of peace and prosperity. But the first time he comes, he comes to die as a substitute and to commission the church to bring his message and his glory to the nations and every people group. But right away, even after that, we see some churches falling into this sort of an error and living as if future or consummated or fulfilled blessing in which there is no trial and no tribulation was for the church right then and not after when Jesus returned for the second time. And we see this in the Corinthian congregation. If you remember the sermons I preached through, uh, through that, I often said that the Corinthian church was guilty of pursuing what's called a theology of glory, which, which would mean that there, that there was an avoidance of the cross and suffering with Christ in order to think that they are above sin and trial and they should just enjoy life free from all the effects of sin. Martin Luther coined that term to my knowledge, and he's speaking about it with people living in his time and in his era. Charles Spurgeon had to contend with what he called the downgrade. Uh, Machen had to deal with liberalism. Pastors within the you know, recent um, last few centuries. Uh, in the fourth century, when Christianity was no longer illegal, churches had to decide what to do with the people who denied the faith in the face of persecution, if they should be let back into the church or not. In the 19th and 20th century, especially, it became common with dispensationalism, and we've talked about that before, to think that the warnings of Revelation are all about some future time period, and that they're, they're, these aren't talking about things that the church has to contend with today. As, and, and the church, as a matter of fact, will actually be raptured, they say, within, uh, before um, the seven-year time span of when these types of things that we read in Revelation will happen. And now, you know, with the late 20th century into our present day, there's a rise of liberalism again, which now goes by progressivism or deconstructivism. And that seems to dwarf even previous examples of this. And so what you have happening with these different misunderstandings of God's word is that people who profess Christianity and sign up for it as, as they were, they, they join a church, they are baptized, they take the Lord's Supper, they profess faith, 
But eventually, because of the things that happen in this world, they're unsatisfied with Christianity. Because Christianity didn't play out like they thought it should or like they were told it would. And so people will either repent of those false beliefs and conform to Christ, or they'll be like those mentioned by Jesus in Matthew 13, the parable of the soils. It's Matthew 13, 20 through 22. And Jesus is explaining the parable. And he talks about the two soils, um, the, the middle two. And this is what he says in verse 20. He says, As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but he endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, there is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Well, I'd put forth to you guys tonight that a careful study of God's word, and especially of this book that we've been going through, this revelation that was given to John, it will help us to not misunderstand God's word concerning the life that we live as Christians in this present evil age. It's sad to see so many professing Christians falling away even right now, or to remain in churches that promote these false views, because certainly persecution and tribulation on the account of the word will come at varying degrees to all Christians, and the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches will be something that every Christian will have to contend with at some level. But in the apocalypse of Jesus Christ that we were given through John's inspired pen, we're warned of these things, and we're comforted in knowing that God is in fact sovereign over them, that the Lamb who was slain, who is now at the right hand of the Father, receiving worship, is sovereign over all of these matters. And so we're sanctified and and preserved and persevered by God through these types of events even. The same events that cause many to fall away from the faith. You see, the trouble that happens on the earth and even to the church, it's not outside of God's will. It's part of his will. And the text that we have before us tonight, the elements of it are popular even outside of Christianity. I used to read X-Men comics a lot as, as a kid, even before I knew what Christianity teaches. And so I had an idea of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Totally a biblical idea, of course, but I had, I had heard of them. What I hope for us to understand tonight, though, is that God is sovereign over the four horsemen, as we'll read in our, in our passage. So let's read the chapter, and then we'll pray. The reading of God's word, beginning at verse 1 in Revelation 6. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another. He was given a great sword. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a loud voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and behold, and look, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with, the, with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. That ends the reading of God's holy inspired sufficient word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word and we ask for understanding tonight. Uh, this passage that we know and this whole section, especially of, of this book, Revelation, that is often debated and confused. We pray that you would help us understand it rightly so that we may know how to rightly live in this world, which is your world, which you are sovereign over. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would impart to us understanding all for your glory's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we continue along in our series of Revelation, I want you to remember that we're in the midst of John's second visionary cycle still. Okay, this is still part of the same vision that he had that began in chapter 4. And so now with chapter 6, we come to a new aspect of his vision, which is going to span from 6-1 all the way to chapter 8, verse 5, where John discusses the opening of the scroll and its seven seals, which had been sealed until the end of time. So the scroll 
which we've been talking about the last few sermons. It reveals God's purpose during the, that last period of time between Christ's first advent and his second coming, the time in between Jesus' first and second coming. And the unsealing of the scroll begins a pattern in which God reveals all this dramatic information about the course of redemptive history. But the book of Revelation is not written to predict specific certain events. The Apostle John is not to be confused with some sort of a fortune teller or even like an end times predictor like we have within our culture today, especially in those dispensational circles. In apocalyptic literature such as this, John does not intend for us to understand the things he reveals literally. Rather, the apostle paints this vivid word picture depicting the course of redemptive history and the ongoing struggle between Christ and his church and the already defeated foe, the, his defeated foe, the devil, who although he is bound and the gospel is advancing, Revelation 20, he is also in a sense like a wounded animal now, an injured animal now, and all the more dangerous as we see in Revelation 12, 12. And so, again, when we read this, we're not to think that there's actually like four actual colored horses and riders on top of them, right? That's symbolic literature that's describing events that are, that are happening. So, really, for us to understand this rightly, we need to understand that the book of Revelation is not existing in a vacuum, that it's clarifying things that are already spoken of in the Old Testament and even in previous... Um, accounts in the New Testament as well, especially through the things that Jesus himself has said. And we've seen that a bunch already. It's appropriate even to think of the book of Revelation as a divinely inspired commentary of the Old Testament, actually. And the key to understanding this book correctly is not to look for particular verses which explain current events. Rather, instead of doing that, we understand the symbols that John uses, the symbolic language that he uses in conjunction with what was already revealed in the Old Testament. But there in the Old Testament, it was shadowy. It was veiled. It wasn't as clear, even if we think apocalyptic literature isn't clear, right? I mean, I know that's something that we tend to think modernly. But remember what Jesus said in the beginning of this book, that this was to help us know who he is and what he has done and that we were blessed for reading this. So again, we we have to get that idea of apocalyptic literature being confusing or meant to confuse us or meant to hide things from us. That's not the case. It's meant to reveal. It's meant to to show us with greater clarity what what things are happening. In the Old Testament, though, truths were veiled. They were shadowy because Christ had not yet come. And the reality about how God is going to bring all things into submission under the lordship of Jesus Christ is was shadowy or veiled in the Old Testament, but it's more clear here now in Revelation. I mean, we just spent the whole last three sermons looking at how Jesus is the lamb slain. Now he's the one who's finally able to open the scroll, right? And they were waiting, people were waiting, as it were, for the first you know, 4,000 years of, of existence, or at least since the fall, uh, for that event to have actually happened. And so the reality that now they're hearing these things and the Lamb is opening the scroll is especially important to those Christians to whom John was writing to in the first century. They had faced the sword of the satanically empowered beast, which is the state, the Roman government. They were forced to acknowledge Caesar as Lord or else risk life and livelihood. They faced the full power of the Greek and Roman paganism. They faced false apostles and prophets who sought to undermine the purity of the gospel by introducing destructive heresies. Some Christians already may have doubted that God was sovereign over disastrous circumstances, such as you know, Nero's mass persecution, which preceded the giving of this letter. Nero's persecution happened around 64 AD. Are you aware of some of the things that Nero did to Christians? How he would... The, you ever heard of the word Roman candlesticks before? That that's from what uh, Nero would do, and he would cover Christians in tar, then tie them to a pole, and then light them on fire to light the streets. Uh, Nero did all these kinds of wicked things, evil, disastrous things. And so here comes John with this revelation now, and and in Revelation 6, explaining some of these types of things. And it's to help the Christians who had just had to endure through those things. Uh, since all these Christians were forced to be confronted on all these types of issues, which we just read about, God gives to his struggling people a heavenly perspective through the visions given to John and 
that are ended up recording this book. They, they need to know that their struggle is not in vain. And that when it's all said and done, they'll be vindicated, even though they're going through these trials and these persecutions. And yet, as we also have seen, when John speaks to the church's original audience in Western Asia, Western Asia near the end of the first century, he's also speaking to us living in the you know, opening decade of the 21st century. He's speaking to the church that exists all throughout the time span between Jesus' first and second coming. And this becomes apparent when John's focus in the second vision shifts from the scene of the throne in heaven to the scroll and its divine perspective of those covenant blessings and curses which will unfold throughout the millennial age, which in that period of time between the two comings of Christ, elsewhere spoken of as the last days, when, when the Lamb opens the scroll, God reveals a, a great deal of, about the final epic of human history in those last days before God brings its redempt, his redemptive history to its glorious climax. And when he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth, and we read about those things in the, in the latter chapters of Revelation. So before we turn to the text to explain the specifics of it, there's a couple things that need to be said about how we understand what follows. And this is going to spread out over a while, but from here, beginning in Revelation 6, we're going to find a series of judgments that occur in a secular fashion. There are the seven seal judgments in Revelation 6, 1 through 8, 5, and the seven trumpet judgments in Revelation 8, 6 through eleven nineteen, And then there's the seven bowl judgments in Revelation chapter 16. And then there are these two big long pauses as well in between the sixth and the seventh seal and judgment. And so what this means is that we shouldn't read this section of Revelation as though they were historical narrative in which the seal judgments occur in time chronologically prior to the trumpet judgments and then prior to the bowl judgments coming at the end. Rather, in apocalyptic literature, each of these cycles is overlapping. So I'm trying to give you a big picture right now, okay? So something that you'll have to try to remember and think about as we spend the next you know, few months going through this book. And so because there's this re- repeated cycle, it reminds us that what is depicted in the seal judgments covers, which we're, we just read a moment ago, covers the entire period of time between Christ's first and second coming. It's not like the first so-called horseman comes, he did his damage, and then he leaves, and then the second one comes, then on and on. That's not the idea here. The same is true for the trumpet and bowl judgments, although the bowl judgments seem to intensify at, at the time of the end. And yet, as we move from the seals to the trumpets, and then to the bulls, we'll also see an intensification of God's judgment upon the dragon, who's Satan, the beast, which is the state, and the false prophet, the Antichrist, and all of those who serve them, as well as an increasingly violent response from the dragon and his henchmen as they wage war upon the saints before their appointed end finally comes, which we'll read about in Revelation 20. But notice then, each of these judgments, so 21 judgments, we could say, the seven seals, seven bowls, seven trumpets, they all cover the entire church age, this entire span of time in between Christ's first and second coming, specifically. They're overlapping. And yet, because of the way that John gives these visions, there is a likelihood that the things will be intensified near the end of Christ's second coming. These cycles of judgments characterize the present evil age, but, again, they're going to intensify. We, it's, that claim can be made immediately before the end. The retelling of this course of history from a different perspective is a key feature of apocalyptic literature. Technically, it's known as recapitulation, and I mentioned this in the first or the second sermon from this series, if you remember. But recapitulation, if you think of it like a football game, like be watching a TV football game and there's a the there's three cameras on the field each camera is recording the same exact play happening from a different angle so you see different elements of the play happening just depending upon what angle it is that's kind of like what these these three different judgments are they're helping us to see this whole age this whole time span in between jesus first and second coming from three different angles so it's very similar there's a lot of overlap and a lot of nearness in repeating between them but they're slightly different same thing if you were to watch like a football play from three different um, camera angles all uh, looking at the same exact play 
So it's called recapitulation. And in the first vision, John looks at the present age from the perspective of Christ's continuing presence with his people. Then in Revelation uh, 4 and 5, John then describes the scene before the heavenly throne. And then beginning, beginning of Revelation 6, John's going to describe the course of the present age through the lens of a series of ongoing judgments which culminate in the return of Jesus Christ. So these things are all happening, and he's going to explain it more fully as we go along too. So in, in order to understand the pattern better, it's helpful to turn to the gospel as well as the Old Testament. So remember, the four gospels are a part of the New Testament but they are organically connected to the Old Testament because they're telling about the Messiah that the Old Testament prophesied about. And so Jesus addresses the same subject that John is reading, uh, writing to us here about in Revelation 6 uh, in what's called the Olivet Discourse. Our Lord speaks of the signs of the end of the age in response to the disciples' questions about the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. So if you want, you could turn back to Matthew 24. That's where I'll be reading from. And this is verse 3 through 8, and this is again the Olivet Discourse. Or you can just listen. That's okay too. <clears throat> so it says, As he, meaning Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming at and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. So now this, of course, sounds very similar to the things that we read in our text earlier. Jesus describes the cycles of wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes and so on found throughout the church age before his return as being like birth pains. And while there is specific application to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD that Jesus is talking about here, it's not to say that they're only for then because they have obviously existed since then. Right, this text, though it's specific to 70 A.D., it can't be limited to 70 A.D., right? Because the past 1,900 years of the same types of things have been happening. And John tells about it after 70 A.D. as well, since he's writing this around 90 A.D. And Jesus is saying that this destruction of the temple that's going to include war, famine, pestilence, persecution false powers rising up, that it's just the beginning of the birth pains. Now, this is a student ministry, and so looking around, there is only one of us here who knows what birth pains are like, Miss Val. That's the only person. And so what I've heard about, yeah, high five, ladies. <laughs> and so what I've heard about birth pains is, you know, that it's much worse than having the flu, I'm told. But that there is an intense pain that characterizes the entire process of labor and delivery. And then early on, contractions are followed by brief periods of rest and relief. But as the labor continues and it proceeds to the actual birth, the pain becomes more and more and more intensifying to, the, to there's like virtually a period of no relief at all. Is that how it was for you? If you can take the epidural, right? That's advisable to do. I don't know about that. Uh, I think you need something stronger than that. Um, and so just before the birth itself, if you're not taking any medicine to alleviate that pain, it becomes impossible to tell which contraction will be the final one. That's what I've heard it's like. I wouldn't know personally. My wife's always had C-sections and probably, you know, praise the Lord for those C-sections because we might not, we probably wouldn't have her after Silas's birth just because of how uh, her body worked. So, this same intensifying cycle of signs of the end preceding the Lord's return in which Jesus describes his birth pains should be kept in mind when we look at the cycles of judgment in the book of Revelation, right? The beginning of birth pains was described in Matthew 24. Well, if it's the beginning of birth pains, it's, we, we're inclined to think that it's going to get worse, it's going to increase, and eventually to the very end where it's just going to be perhaps more intense, 
they continue throughout the course of the present age and they reach their climax when the return of Jesus Christ comes to judge the world, to raise the dead and to make all things new at the end of the age. But we also need to be, when we're going to think of this passage, we also need to be aware of two Old Testament passages as well. So let's look back to Ezekiel 14. And remember, Ezekiel 14 is properly given in the period of the Old Covenant when the kings of Israel were reigning. And really, you know, the Old Covenant was coming to an end. And Ezekiel spends much of his ministry warning the Old Covenant community. But in Ezekiel uh, 14, what's going on at verse 12 is he's describing a series of judgments that are mentioned. And Ezekiel even says that, well, even if Noah and Daniel and Job were present, their righteousness wouldn't be enough to deliver the people. And so already it's pointing us to a need of Christ's righteousness, right? And then in each section, he, he describes four different judgments. So look at verse 21 for a summary of it all. If you're there, I'll just read it. Verse 21 says, For thus says the Lord God, How much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence to cut, off it, to cut off from it man and beast. So note, it's the four kinds of, same four kinds of judgments, and they're all existing side by side, suggesting that the various disasters contained in the four seals also occurs at the same time, rather than in some sort of specific order. These are the means that God uses to bring about his ends. And they are wise means even. It's the way he did it in the time of the Old Covenant. And those were given as types so we might understand what is before us today. All the while making us to be grateful for the righteousness and the hope that the whole church has in Christ. Rather than just being part of a nation. And remember even, the church, properly speaking, is a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And so those who fall away from the church, those who apostatize, do so we read in First John, because they were never truly of us. They were never truly united to Christ. Christ's church is not one that is defeated or losing. It's always conquering and growing because it actually can't be subtracted from. Once a person is truly part of the church, they won't lose that because Christ is holding us fast. And these judgments come now in this age in a similar fashion to the old covenant, but God preserves the true church through it all. In, in Ezekiel, that was part of the means by which he was, he was ending the Old Covenant. These judgments are coming in. But in the New Covenant, these types of judgments come and he preserves his church through them until he comes again. And there's one more Old Testament text that I want you to see before we look at the specifics of Revelation 6, 1 through 8. So turn with me to Zechariah 6, 1 through 8. Which is interesting, right? We're in Revelation 6, 1 through 8. And now I'm having us look back at, at Zechariah 6, 1 through 8. It's interesting how there are sometimes these kind of coincidences with the numbering of texts. Because remember, the, the numbering of the Bible verses isn't inspired. It was done hundreds of years after the canon was complete. Yet this type of coincidence, and of course there's no real coincidence concerning God. There's no such thing as chance from his point of view. Um, but this kind of coincidence happens at a few places. God's sense of humor perhaps. I don't know. His kindness certainly it helps us to remember things. But Zechariah 6, 1 through 8 says this. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots come out of, came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? And the angel answered to me and said, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes towards the north country and the white ones go after them and the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. So again, it's apocalyptic literature in Zechariah. There's a difference between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom at play there. But for our purposes tonight, to just see the, the similarities between Zechariah 6, 1 and 8 and Revelation 6, 1 and 8. Nearly the exact same colors of horses is mentioned in Revelation 6. And they go toward the whole earth 
in different directions to patrol the earth, to do the Lord's will. And they circle the earth. And again, note, we don't have to be systematic starting and stopping between the four horses and the chariots. So again, the things that we read in Revelation 6, 1 through 8, and then later with the bold judgments and the trumpet judgments, they're, they're not starting and stopping judgments. They aren't like the ten plagues, in other words. But these are all where, where you had the first plague and there was a stop. And there was a second plague and there was a stop. And the third plague and on and on. It's not like that with these. These are events that are happening all the time in different places according to God's purposes and God's will. And so with that background information in our minds, let's consider what these first four seals are telling us. The vision in the throne room is moving us from God's sovereign sovereignty and creation to the Lamb's sovereignty and redemption, and now the Lamb's sovereignty over the events that are normal for life in this age before he comes. And so he begins to open up these seals. He is the only one who can do it. He's the Lamb slain, the righteous root of David, the Lion of Judah, the only one worthy to open the seals. And so this first seal, Revelation 6, 1 through 2, says, Now I watched... And when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come, and I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. So remember the words of Zechariah 6, when the prophet saw the four colored horses and their chariots symbolizing the four winds of heaven. In Zechariah's prophecy, the horses represent God's judgment upon the enemies of Judah going out to the four corners of the earth. It's the first thing to remember. And then also, as we've seen in previous weeks, the book of Revelation, the number four, symbolizes the earth. The four, the four supposed corners of the earth, north, east, west, south. We saw the four living creatures around the throne symbolizing all of creation. And so in John's vision, the four horsemen go to the very ends of the earth for the purpose of bringing God's judgment upon all those nations who oppose God's rule and who oppress Christ's church. All the earth is affected by the devastation brought about by the horsemen. And because the lamb is worthy to open the scroll, he's the one who's actually empowering these riders to go forth and bring destruction upon the earth. Remember, it's not actual riders. He's speaking a symbolic language to tell us about what is happening. But nothing happens outside of God's will, right? He works all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. Well, this is an aspect of his will, of his counsel. And of course, you know, at the same time, there are good things happening. People are getting married. People are falling in love and having babies and families. Salvations are occurring. All those things are happening according to God's will as well. But here he's showing us that judgment comes by his capable hands as well. So since the first rider goes forth to conquer and rides upon a white horse and has a crown, a number of commentators connect this particular rider to the image of the rider in Revelation 19 which is certainly at that point Jesus Christ riding upon a white horse coming in judgment. Revelation 19 is certainly Jesus, but that's not the case here. Here in Revelation 6, contrary to our post-millennial friends, someone who's post-millennial believes that Jesus is going to return after the millennium, specifically after much of the world has been Christianized, and there's much of nuance to that depending on who you talk to. But contrary to what most of them believe, This text in Revelation 6 isn't about Jesus Christ going forth to conquer unbelief through the power of his word, that double-edged sword which brings judgment upon the nations. And there's good reasons to not see it as Christ here in Revelation 6. In Revelation 19, Jesus wields a sword and wears many crowns, while here in Revelation 6, the rider has a bow and a single crown. But notice, the rider is wearing white and is on a white horse. And as we've seen in previous sections of Revelation, the color white is, tip, is used to symbolize holiness and, and the cleansing that is associated with receiving atonement. But this rider in white doesn't have the many crowns and the double-edged sword of the rider in Revelation 19, which again is clearly Jesus. When we read that text, it'll be so obvious to you because a lot of the things that were mentioned in Revelation chapter 1 about Jesus are mentioned again in 19. And also, when we think of Revelation 6 here, it's, it's within the pattern of four that we saw in Matthew 28, Ezekiel 14, and Zechariah 6. And so this writer is out to conquer. But what is it that he's conquering with, and who is it that he's conquering? Well, he's conquering those across the world, 
even as the agent of Christ, but with a false gospel. He's creating tares among the wheat, as it were. Wolves in sheep clothing. These are the people of those two soils in Matthew 13 that we read about earlier. These are the people who will on that final day say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, we did mighty works in your name. And Jesus, Jesus will say to them, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. I never loved you. This is what Jude warns about in his letter with false teachers. What the Apostle Paul warns about in First and Second Timothy and elsewhere. What Peter warns about in Second Peter 2. What John warns about in First in first john it's akin to the warning in galatians to not believe another gospel because there is no other gospel even if an angel of light gives it to you and so satan is of course intent on destroying the church but christ ordains this judgment for the glory of his own name so that the true true church will be refined and grow in sanctification and so that the truth will all be all the more evidence in the face of the lie And so that the church will have confidence that in spite of their present suffering, God is in ultimate control and he is working out his will among the world and the church. Even among the the so-called deconstructing of our age, even among the twists to the gospel that people have done, that false teachers have done throughout the ages that appear to be Christianity, but actually lack the true substance of what what true Christianity is, Christ is working through these things for his glory. And he's ultimately in control. But that's not the only form of judgment that will exist in this present age. Revelation 6, 3 through 4. <clears throat> and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures. Oh, excuse me. 3 through 4. Um, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red, as rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. So the rider of the white horse symbolizes conquest through a false gospel that deceives people who actually hate God and emphasizes the spiritual battle that exists within the church, while the rider of the red horse symbolizes the bloodshed and warfare which breaks out upon the entire earth until Christ returns at the end of the age to bring peace to all of creation. The red rider moves from place, uh, removes peace from the earth. And with that peace removed from the earth, there's an ever-increasing bloodshed and warfare to follow. It's been, and that's been the case, and even before, obviously, Christ's first advent, right? But, even, but especially after. It's been said that in the 20th century, more lives were lost in war and through atrocities than in all of the previous human history combined. If you think about it, there's been two world wars and massive genocide across all nations. Uh, there's that one-child policy in China, and millions of legal abortions in Western civilizations, bloodshed, and physical death. But the word translated as slay here points more clearly to the persecution of believers. When this word, when this word is translated elsewhere in Revelation, it's always in light of the persecution that comes upon the church and Christ from the dragon, which is Satan and false religion, and the beast, which is the state, which is essentially a form of religion even. With one exception, in which where the beast is pretending to be the church, so kind of like the the fruit of that first horseman, and his head is chopped off and he's slain. It's a, it's a play on words to show how the Antichrist mocks the true Christ and is you know ended up defeated. But if you remember back to um, Matthew twenty four as well, and this was the same accounts in the Synoptic Gospel, Gospels, Mark and Luke. Uh, the judgments that are addressed to, to Christians, actually, so that we won't be caught off guard when it happens. So the, the word slayer, this red rider, it's more, I mean, it's, it's talking about the general bloodshed that comes across all humanity, but more specifically, that bloodshed that comes to Christians. Uh, our Lord Jesus suffered and died. We who follow him should not be surprised when it also happens to us. And there will be no genuine peace upon the earth until Christ comes again. And if the intensifying pattern holds, the coming century may be worse than the last one. We'll see. Um, Next, John sees the Lamb open the third seal. And so in Revelation 6, verse 5, 
we read, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. So some historical background is necessary to know what's going on here about this particular judgment. In John's time, a quart of wheat was an average day supply for a soldier and what amount and what that amount of wheat typically cost was one eighth of a denarius but after this black horse goes forth the price of grain is inflated to 800 percent barely was barley was much cheaper but it was really only eaten by poorer people since it did not have the food value of of wheat but Three quarts of barley for a day's wage then is an outlandish price. The barley is what you would buy because you couldn't really afford wheat. Well, now wheat's astronomical and barley's somehow more expensive than wheat even. What is a person to do? Inflation, unjust scales, they're certainly not a good thing. And, and the love of riches could drive a person away from their profession of faith. But notice that the supplies of the oil and the wine are not affected. And so what that is symbolized by the rider of the black horse is, is famine and economic turmoil. And although famine and the related hardships that result from God's judgment, the, the famine is brought about by the third rider on the black horse is not total. Not everything is affected by the famine. But, you know, in other words, it's not that goods won't exist altogether. Sure, some shelves are going to be empty, but there are other items that will be plentiful. But don't be surprised if you can't afford them because the basic things needed for life are taking up all of one's wealth. This leads to uncertainty. It leads to unrest in communities where a wealthy class seems to be doing well despite the suffering of everyone around them. (laughs) I mean, maybe at a small scale, a little bit. Is it happening right now? Definitely more so than it was a decade ago, right? But again... If you look, refer back to your small group and I tried to have application there, like we're not able to see the whole span of history to know if, if it was ever worse at other times than it is now. And I'm sure it probably was, but it could get worse and we don't know. But we're not everywhere all at the same time too. So it's hard to make judgments about the intensifying and the returns in Christ's return if we're thinking of it in that way at least. So this sort of a judgment would be more noticeable in other societies unlike ours, and especially so for John's original hearers, where the gap between poor and wealthy was very large, although that's happening, again, like Clint points out, somewhat in our day today as well. But this is even a a judgment on those who are wealthy who won't look to Christ, because they think that they are well in their riches, and their ability to not be affected, like the poor groups, is often a means of clouding their judgment and fueling their pride. And so this third rider has you know, condemnation in store, even for those who think they are okay just because they have wealth. And so even though many in the church will suffer in this economic turmoil, we're trained as Christians to be grateful and thankful to the Lord for what we have and to glorify God and our dependence upon him. Our dependence and our trust isn't in our wealth, it's in Christ. And so in verse 7 through 8, John sees the lamb open the fourth seal. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over the fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, and famine, and pestilence, and by the wild beasts of the earth. So the rider of the pale horse, literally a green horse, is the color used in Koine Greek for the color of sickness, is named Death. And then Hades follows closely behind him when he goes forth. We'll talk more about Hades, the grave, as we proceed all along through Revelation. But remember that in Revelation 1, Jesus held in his hands the keys of death in Hades, symbolizing his power to liberate people from death and its consequences. And how does he do that? Through the gospel, right? Through the good news of being reconciled through who he is and what he has done. And so this writer is not something that should cause the church to cower. Christ is Lord even here. And notice the rider on the pale horse is given the power to kill, to bring war, to bring famine and plague on the earth. He also possesses the power to cause the beasts of the earth to rebel against human dominion. 
it's basically a retelling of the previous three horses and judgments, perhaps symbolizing an intensifying effect, but at the same time note that it only affects a quarter of the earth. So when we consider the world and the course of events that have happened and will are continuing to happen, isn't that really what we find? That these judgments don't harm every person without exception. Yes, the effects of sin make it so that all people suffer some way, both in the church and outside the church. It's not always the same. The point, though, is that we are being reminded that Christ is sovereign over all these matters, that his will is being accomplished, and Christ Jesus is sovereign over these horsemen. And even through great trials, even through trials that will terrify the world, that will cause the world to question what it believes, these are the things that Christ perseveres his bride through. He's the lamb slain in our place. Even these things, the judgments mentioned here in these first four seals, are not enough to separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing will separate the elect from God. Remember what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8, 35-39? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And just listen to things that are listed, because they're the same things that are listed here in Revelation 6, 1-8. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to, the, to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. These are the very things mentioned in the four seals, are they not? And the point that we should take from, Christ, from this in Christ's sovereignty over the horsemen is that we, we need never think that such things will defeat us or that they mean that Jesus doesn't love us. Christ Jesus is the worthy one the one who is worthy to open the scroll, the lamb slain for his church. By his blood, we are healed. We are justified because of God. He is the efficient cause of our salvation. And he is greater than anything that is in this world. And he's even using these judgments in the world to bring about his ends. And they won't separate us from him. Tribulation, tribulation and persecution on account of the word will come. The cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches will be something that every Christian must contend with. But by the grace that Christ supplies, continue to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, because everything is under his sovereign control. Not just the good things that we perceive as being good, but even these bad things, these judgments that take place in our, in our lifetime as well. Let's pray. Holy God, we are grateful that you are sovereign in control because... We know that the testimony of history tells us that the types of things that are mentioned in Revelation 6, 1 through 8 have been occurring and continue to occur even now, even perhaps even in an intensified way, certainly an intensified way in our present culture and society and lifetime. But we know, Lord, that through these things, because you're not detached from them, that actually you're the one who opens the scroll and cracks these seals and sets forth these judgments, that you won't lose us through them. And so, Lord, we pray that by whatever means is required for our sanctification, you give us grace to be able to endure it so that we may, with saints in history past, rejoice in the ways in which you grow us and sanctify us. Even sometimes we know how it is that you use what looks like defeat, apparent defeat, to bring forth victory in our lives, Lord. We pray that you would help us to not lose sight of Christ and that you are good. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> all right, guys. Anything I could... This popular pastors, the four horsemen. Anything I could try to make more clear? Explain better. I have a question on Matthew 24. Okay. Matthew 24. Actually, you passed. Let me turn to it. Just the end of the age? Yeah. That's pretty debated. Um, I think what. So, the abomination of desolation in 15, verse 15, by the prophet Daniel. Yeah, um, I, I think that is 
speaking also of the destruction of the temple. So there's something, what's the, the emperor's name? I think it's Tiberius at that time, who comes in and they, they put a, a pig in the temple. is like trying to like, which, you know, for the Jewish people, that was an unclean animal. And, um, and so that was a big deal. That's what most people consider the abomination of desolation. But when we look at that text, and actually a little bit later, um, you know, it, it's hard... It, it's hard to tell what's specific to 70 AD and what's also beyond it. And so what's part of the difficulty with prophecy, which this passage is prophecy, is that when it's given to us through the Spirit and the writers of the Bible, that it's, it's flattened. And so some things happen, like we don't see that there's space in between them or that there's multiple filaments. We just see what's said. And so we have to look at it kind of as... Um, at least potentially, being room for it to be fulfilled later rather than just specifically. But there's definitely, you know, when we look at Matthew 24, he talks about it happening in their generation. So we can't, like, just say it's all future, which is what some people tend to do. We have to also note that it's talking about 70 AD. But then I think those types of things, again, it's just the beginning of the birth pains. But then it flips back. It talks about almost like the second coming. Almost like the second coming, right? But... Right, and I think, you know, we'd be right to say that some of the things that happen at 70 AD are, again, like they're, they're similar or they're types to the types of things that happen at the second coming as well, too. The moon darkened, that same type of judgment, that's judgment literature, apocalyptic literature, that's speaking about judgment. And what Revelation 6 all the way through 16 is going to tell us is that type of judgment, apocalyptic literature, is sparse throughout that text and is referring to things that happened in the past and things that will also happen in the future. Yeah, just like gathering the legend. Um, so that, they're not being future, Future, you would think, right? Yeah. But, so you have to, I guess, so again, it's like overlaid. I've heard it described like this before too. Like, it's like a mountain range. So you know how if you're, if you're driving, let's say like we're driving towards the Rockies and we see a mountain. Well, we just see the tops of the mountains. We can't see that there's these valleys in between the tops of the mountains. And so, whereas the, when the prophet gives the prophecy, you just see the top, so it looks like one thing, but really there's these gaps and there's spaces. And so, and it's very possible that in Matthew 24, Jesus could be talking about 70 AD, future, back to 70 AD, back to future again. We're going to see that in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 12, all of a sudden we're going to get the story about the birth of Jesus. But like the birth of Jesus is way before, is, you know, 90 years before uh, John is on Patmos, and yet it's going to talk about that. So again, it kind of does that, that up and down type of thing. That makes sense. Prophecy is tough because of that. Anything else? Okay. Okay.